0: Sexual assault is one of the most endemic societal issues that we face today. It affects women, girls, boys and even men alike. However, it is sad that we have been conditioned to think about sexual assault and rape in a way that usually encompasses a woman being violently penetrated by a man however this leads to change this discussion is reviewing the parameters of sexual assault and rape under Nigerian law and discussing the nuances of this particular delicate subject my name is Damiola Agbaje i'm still your host for the podcast legal hangout and with me here today is Hawa Abikol so this is our very first episode of the year and i'm so excited to have everybody back on the podcast for a couple of reasons i've not been able to post as consistently as i would have loved to but 2021 is a new and beautiful year and i promise beautiful content back-to-back. Back. So, our would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, Dami. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast, particularly as it's the first uh, podcast for the year. My name is Hawa Abikon. I'm a lawyer in Nigeria and currently studying at the University of Sussex in the UK, for a postgraduate in international law. So today I and Awa would demystify the issues of sexual assaults under Nigerian law. So on the first level, Awa please explain to us what rape even means in the legal context of things. There are two codes that define crimes in Nigeria, we have the penal code and criminal code. The penal code applies to the north and the criminal code applies to the south and both of them are unilateral in their definition of rape. For rape to occur, they ha- there has to be sexual intercourse performed by a man to a woman and such sexual intercourse must be done without the consent of the woman and consent would come in different forms. So her clearly not giving her consent or perhaps her giving her consent, but such consent being obtained by force or by intimidation or by false representation on the part of the rapist. So I could not help but notice the gendered aspect of rape that the criminal and penal code of Nigeria posits. So this seems to be an huge issue because societally, Nigeria being a conservative society, there is this belief that men are hardwired to want sex at every period of time. So to the extent where men always want these things, then we now get to the presumptions that men can never be raped or never be sexually assaulted because they always want these things. But that just seems like a shoddy attempt at victim blaming to me. So is there any other thing that Nigerian law has to take care or cater for men who have been sexually assaulted or who, you know, have been raped? all right first on the issue of the definition of rape in our criminal codes being gendered i ignored the provision of the violence against persons prohibition act of 2015 because unlike the other two provisions i mentioned it doesn't have wide acceptance but it actually represents a paradigm shift from the conception that only men can commit rape when it defines uh, rape in the first section of the act even as being penetration of a man or a woman so it conceives the idea that men can also be unlawfully penetrated sexually by another man or by a woman um, without their consent or with their consent being obtained by force or illegally um, without true false misrepresentation and all so that provision caters for the ability of men to or represents a legal system acknowledging that men can also be raped however like I said it's does it doesn't have wide acceptance because the act became an act in 2015, but more than five years after, 23 out of 36 states are yet to domesticate it. And if it doesn't have um, domestic acceptance, it means that it will not be applicable to the courts, the high courts where, or other courts within the states where such proceedings would normally start from. Wow. It is so sad that only one third of Nigerian states have the capacity to pursue justice for male victims of rape. However, the restrictions on the idea of rape in the Nigerian legal system really do not stop there. There is this funny thing that the constitution also provides for, which is the fact that rape in the confines of marriage is seen as impossibility under the law. So can you please shed a little light on that and explain probably why this even exists? Alright. It exists because when the law presumes unlawful carnal knowledge which rape also comes under, under, it doesn't presume that marriage would accommodate any sort of unlawful carnal knowledge, because marriage implies that, or should imply, based on presumption of the laws that we've had in Nigeria and we still have, that any sort of sexual relationship within lawful marriages means that both parties have given their consent um, to such sexual relationships. So, The criminal code, for example, as well as the penal code, is clear when it says unlawful carnal knowledge cannot take place in marriage. That's the presumption that this comes out of, which is quite funny because we realise that marriage does not uh, preclude violence. So the fact that people are married does not mean that everything that happens within that setting, there is a... There is consent that has been given prior just based on the act of marriage. Consent is not something that can be extended over a long period of time. It's not something that you give, and it means that it can be used throughout your relations with an individual. It's something that reoccurs, that has to be reinforced, either by words or by actions. So if violence can exist within marriage it means that sexual violence can also happen within marriages and there's been a lot of advocacy for this law to be reformed because a lot of persons especially women who are usually the major targets of domestic violence complain that this violence also becomes sexual at certain instances and because the law doesn't even recognize that such things is a crime, there's no sort of recourse that you can get under the law to punish such violators who are in those cases their partners. Okay, our right. so from what uh learned from what you said, those things is something that is act specific and it's not something that can be given for every single time and every single act at one point so consent is something that should be renewed and something that can be withdrawn am i right ara yeah sure so the issue with consent in certain relationships is that when you have a relationship with a person that is sexual there's a presumption that the person would give their consent to your sexual advances, but that presumption is always reportable. So at the instance where the person withdraws their consent, it's never a defense for you to say, well, they've given their consent prior, or this is the sort of relationship that we have, so your consent should run through the course of our relationship. As as long as it is um, withdrawn, then the person does not give consent to that specific act of and it becomes rape or sexual violence if you go on with what the person has not consented to. So what you mean is that when I'm in a sexual relationship with somebody, I can say that I'm okay with um, vaginal sex. I can just draw the line at oral sex or I can just draw the line to choose not to consent to something like probably being choked during sex so moving on from that and further interrogating the the subject of consent then comes the question of who can even give this consent is consent available to anybody and everybody so we're going to be discussing different categories of people and from the first category is children because they are a very vulnerable population. So what important laws regulates the subject of consent amongst children and whether or not children can give consent? All right, that's an important question because uh, there's been a lot of discussions about concerning this area and also at a point the proliferation of rape and sexual assault on a lot of people who the law regards as being children or underage. So the laws that protect them are the Child Rights Act and the Child Rights Law of several states for the states that have domesticated the act. And of course the criminal code and the penal code, which are applicable uh, codes in their respective areas. And the Child Rights Act in particular defines a child as a person who is below the age of 18. So, anybody who is not yet 18 years old is a child under the conception of that law. And what it says is that sexual intercourse with a child is rape. And this does not take into consideration whether you thought. The person was not a child because some people will tell you that, uh, that the person does not look like a child. They are too; they look too mature for their age. It doesn't matter as long as the person is a child. That is not an important consideration, and, and more importantly, also doesn't matter whether the child gave their consent. So, even if they said that they wanted to engage in sexual intercourse with the perpetrator. That would not be a defense. It's still defined as rape. And this sort of rape becomes statutory rape because it doesn't follow the regular course of rape that we've already discussed that um, is more specific on withdrawal of consent. It even presumes that there could be consent given, but it's still um, rape in that instance. So, and this law is important because it's, it uh, presumes, which I think is rightly presumed, that children cannot give their consent in certain instances. Sexual intercourse being one of such instances, or even if children can give their consent, it might be easier for such consent to be derived from manipulation um, more than perhaps. A, an adult can be manipulated in such instances. So it's a form of protection for children that if an adult has sexual intercourse with them. And it's important that also know that it has to be someone who is not a child for the person to be regarded as rape. If it's a child like them, then that doesn't fall within the purview of the law in um, categorizing that act as, as rape. So to add to that, generally, in relations with children, the law presumes that adults have a duty of care towards children. So in situations where you know that somebody is underage and the person is moving to you, the best thing to do as an adult is to flee. that, that is It's just as simple as that. Because there is this presumption that the law has that you are wiser and you are more knowledgeable than the child. So whatever relations that happen, whoever instigates it, would always be the fault of the adults according to Nigerian law and according to law in so many jurisdictions of the world. So moving away from children, another class of vulnerable people are people under the influence of stimulants. So these stimulants might be either, you know, drugs, alcohol, or anything like that. So what, how does consent work in scenarios like that? In all scenarios when they come before the courts, there's always the issue of context, the specific facts of the case. So such scenarios, if they are not um, children, and we will not have the laws protecting children applied to them. Then we need to look at the um, laws that define consent. So it's always a question of fact, and it's not something I can adjudicate on right now. But it's to is to understand that uh, was the consent derived by um, in, by influencing that person. So maybe through intoxicating that person um making them not able to give or withdraw consent so in such cases that's obviously rip. but i think the cases that you're talking about are in cases whereby a person decides to maybe they're at a party or a social gathering and they decide to drink or become intoxicated perhaps on their own accord and a person comes on to them it's still a question of facts that uh, it will be it'll be a little bit more difficult to decide on such cases, but it's still did the person still give their consent and um even in those kind of instances, was it done without some sort of acknowledgement on the part of that person to to be to continue with such acts or was there some form of resistance or force that was used to commit that act against that person so like I said it's a question of facts and specific context on this sort of issues that's why rape cases can be quite dicey but when you have the full context and know what fully happened you can determine whether there was intimidation force or fear or false representation that was used to force that sexual intercourse or activity from happening and whether you can define that as rape. So, um, moving away from this group, then there is still another group of people and these are people who are either physically um challenged or people who are mentally challenged. So, people who have um, issues with mental problems or diseases like Down syndrome that really do not allow them to be able to make, you know, decisions, make informed decisions that other people would usually make in circumstances like that. So does the law provide any sort of soft landing for these kind of people too? Well, perhaps a more generic reading of the law when it comes to cases of people who have mental, disabilities might help in these sort of issues so if a person is clearly our laws are quite a cake so they sometimes call people who have mental disabilities idiots and the legal backing for many of them is that sexual harassment or assault happens if the victim is an idiot in the words of the law that was not my words so that's very ableist (laughs) exactly so in those kind of instances yes that's a protection but also there's always the the presumption in the law that people who have a mental ailment would not perpetually have that mental ailment at every hour of the day so maybe they have lucid intervals so this is also a question of facts did the did the act or the event happen during the lucid interval of that person? If it did and the person rightly gave their consent, then that's a lawful kind of knowledge in the words of the law. But if it happened at the time of um, of their mental incapacity, then it's sexual harassment that's been done on such a person so moving away from the topic of rape it's very pertinent to know that sexual assault doesn't include rape alone sexual assault also includes things like you know sexual harassment um revenge porn Pornography or whatever. So, things like sexual as, um, harassment in the workplace and other spaces like that, things like quid pro quo, sexual harassment, and other things. So, how, what is even sexual harassment, right? Moving away from the idea of oh, penetration, consent, and things like that. What, what, when does sexual harassment even occur? Okay, sexual harassment involves unwelcome sexual advances requests for sexual favors um verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature and it can happen in different places um maybe the workplace when people get or schools or wherever people socialize where people get unwanted sexual attention um And sometimes people even go to the extent of uh, categorizing sexual harassment as um, some sort of gendered harassment, perhaps when you say things apply to to men but they don't apply to women or vice versa. So and it's very important to include these discussions when you talk about issues of sexual assault too because uh, they are perhaps more commonplace than rape and because of the kind of culture that we have uh, it may be easy to overlook them or certain people might have this sort of actions and they may claim that they don't even realize that it is sexual harassment or even worse of some people might have been victims of sexual harassment and they do not realize that they've been victims of sexual harassment because it's not clear what are the things they define as sexual harassment so like the conversation on rape is also a lot about consent when you talk about sexual harassment because sexual advances from a welcomed partner, someone you wants the sexual advances from would not count as sexual harassment. It has to be unwelcome um, and it has to be something that perhaps is repetitive or something that is clearly not what you want or not in the right environment or space for those sort of things. For example, if someone keeps asking you out on a date, um, perhaps the person is your boss or just a random person, it gets to a point where that becomes sexual harassment when it's clear that it's unwelcomed um, and it's unsolicited and you certainly do not want it. Or if someone catcalls you while you are walking on the road, that's sexual harassment as well. So sometimes it doesn't even involve touch. It can just be words or actions or sometimes can be as bad as just gazes, how someone um, inappropriately looks at you and it becomes sexual harassment in those sort of instances. So it's very important to make spaces as welcoming for people as possible, both male and female even though we have to concede that a lot of these issues disproportionately disproportionately fall on the female gender but they also fall on the male gender too so while trying to protect our spaces it is very important to make people feel comfortable and not make them subject of sexual harassment this reminds me of something that used to happen when i was in secondary school um, they used to call it tapping current and just touching people in sexual places without their consent and it felt so funny. Things like this are not funny. Things like this are things that people should not have to go through in the workplace, in school environment or even any environment at all. Any advances that are sexual and not welcome is sexual harassment and please do not engage in sexual harassment. So moving away from the problem, it's time to talk about possible solutions that we can at least provide to this pressing issue. So on the first level, we need to talk about um, legislative reform because when our was talking about the, the VAPP law, the Law that has changed a lot of things in the subject of sexual assault and rape. She mentioned the fact that only one third of states in Nigeria have this law domesticated in their state law. So if in those other two third of those states that don't have this law domesticated. If these bad things happen in those states, then those people cannot get justice at all. Even the Child Rights Act, our talked about that gave um, the age of consent and other things like that to protect children. This act has not been domesticated by all states in Nigeria, so there are still some states that this act don't 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 really work. And I feel like this is honestly a very very big issue. Or don't you think so? Yeah, of course it is, because what's the point of having such laws if they won't protect you in such instances? The domestication is very important, especially if you operate a system like Nigeria, where domestication is what you need before it can be applicable in certain courts. So also moving away from that, another issue is the fact that a lot of people complain about the penalties that we have for rape currently. And most people feel like these penalties are not penalties that are waiting enough. And they want them to be increased to things like um, castration and other penalties. Incapacitative techniques. So, what do you think about techniques like Do you think that they can really be effective? But well, I don't think a single solution can be effective to stop rape. It might be effective for the single perpetrator or criminal to be um, perhaps imprisoned or castrated, but rape being a societal issue means that it has to be multifaceted solutions directed at the problem. We talked already about the culture that we have that sometimes encourages sexual harassments. Giving the example in as early as your school, your secondary school, where it was funny for people to engage in such acts, those sort of cultures make it easier for people to graduate into a more into worst forms of sexual harassment which rape comes into so there has to be a holistic view of the problem and also a holistic solution on the issue of castration (laughs) there's a lot of mixed views on this um castration has been used in many places whether surgical or chemical to lower testosterone levels of people while it might be something that could be tried i think it it also Heavily relies on the notion that certain men are animals and and beasts, and they cannot control themselves when it comes to um, having sexual relations with women. And the only way to curtail them is by is by removing the hormones that make them beastly. This may be true for certain people, but when you look at a lot of cases of rape, it's not necessarily true rape is more likely um, to be perpetrated in instances where people want to do it and they believe they can also get away with it. So there's a lot of thing, um, things that has to be looked at in the cultures that we have that promotes that promotes things that can lead to rape. Also, on terms, in terms of the of the laws there's been a lot of legislative reforms that have happened in in terms of the definition of rape. A lot still has to be done. On the issue of marital rape that we talked about, for example, this also has to be included in our laws. But more importantly, there's a sort of indifference that certain leaders in states have in terms of domesticating these laws. And it's important for their electorates to call them out on this indifference and the only way the electorates can call them out on the indifference is for them in the first place to be aware that these laws are existent in Nigeria but they have to put more pressure on their leaders to make such laws applicable um, to them. So yes, I completely agree with the views that Awa has espoused. To buttress on what she just said, personally for me, I don't think that the sentences or the penalties for rape now are not very severe, but I do think that these penalties are not being given out to people as much as they should be given out so it's not about how the penalties are not so much it's about how nobody or most people are not even getting these penalties at the end of the day so moving on from that there is also a need to interrogate ICT and technology into these rape management issues because although we have some work going on like the national agency agency um, on the prohibition of trafficking in persons, as a website where there is a registry of sexual offenders, and you can just go there to go and check. Okay, people who are sexual offenders and other things like that. And some states, um, HKS states, to as a precise example, are also as a naming and shaming platform across Twitter. I don't know if they have an Instagram page, but I do know that they have on Twitter and on radio to make sure that people who are recalcitrant and people who do these crimes are exposed from media so that they cannot be put in places where they can continue to wreck this out However, these programs are things that are not totally coordinated. So if few states are doing this, then um. The federal government is doing this and everything really has you no know, form or manner to it so we need to move on from that and have better infrastructure um, i mean technological infrastructure that combines everything to give a very seamless um system of of checking up on these sexual offenders yeah of course um Register of sexual offenders is a very good idea to because the, the problem with rape is that when a victim suffers rape, for most people something that affects them throughout their lives. But for the perpetrators, sometimes they are not caught or uh, they they don't get even when they are prosecuted and they spend a few years in jail, that's enough, they've they've Done their penance and they can move on with their lives. But things like a register of sexual offenders will tell people that it's something that is going to follow you throughout your life. So if you commit this act, people would have your name somewhere and they would be able to profile you. So employers will be able to profile you, um, people that you want to have connections with may be able to profile you in those kind of instances. So I think this is going to be a very big deterrent on people to stop raping others. Finally, it's time to engage on the elephant in the room, and that is the option of self-help, mostly in form of internet call that has become so rampant in you know the times that we are now so there are different sides to self-help and internet call-outs. They can be hugely destructive and they can also be hugely constructive. So, an example of a constructive word is the Justice for Uwa campaign that led to a lot of consciousness about rape and also led to the Cardinal State House of Assembly implementing a law on castration of sexual offenders in the Cardona states um, jurisdiction. However, on the bad side of it, we have um, cases like, you know, Justin Yuji where people were accused of rape and a few days later or a while later you just find out that these are just efforts to just slander their image because probably people were jealous of them or you know, things like that. So how do we really navigate this tricky method? That's a very topical question because like you said, that's what most people are doing now. They would, a lot of people would rather have their justice served on Twitter than to go to courts and start a whole proceeding on rape. And I think when we have a lot of people resorting to self-help or mob justice if you like to call it that it's a reflection of a bigger problem because society already creates a channel to air your grievances which in the which in the criminal justice system is the courts but when people ignore those channels it means that it's either they don't believe that they are going to get get justice from those channels or don't believe that they are going to get speedy justice from those channels which if we see the case in many nigerian courts this is actually quite true so self-help is always horrible because even when we see that uh, there is there's some positive things that could come out of it particularly when the person is right the problem is that unlike a and organize an advanced court system that has better channels to be able to investigate the truth, which sometimes they could even be wrong themselves. Um, and it becomes worse in instances of social media where it's just, it's just a case of someone's word against the other person's word and might not necessarily mean whether it happened or not. Most instances, nobody was there apart from the parties involved so it's only based on what they say that we can know clearly whether they did or not it's like when you think of a case in the market where a market woman just starts shouting thief thief and then people catch a person that is running away and burn the person down immediately it might be that the person was right that that person was actually a thief or it may be that the person didn't steal anything and the seller just hated them or wanted to punish them for for whatever reason they had in mind so because of that many civil societies frown on self-help but the internet is very important in creating awareness and also pushing for change so to the extent like you mentioned the OWA case to the extent whereby we have very lax enforcement law enforcement agencies that may not react in the ways that they should for people that are meant to protect the populace. The internet becomes very important in pushing or advocating for them um, to react or force to have legislative or judicial reforms that allow people to be better protected in instances of rape or generally sexual assault or harassment. So to that extent, it's very important that the internet be used as a tool. But to the extent whereby the internet is the entire judicial system. The judges are people who use their phone to say oh this person is right, this person is wrong the lawyers are, um, are whoever appoints themselves as lawyers and then the parties have to present their case in such instances it's very problematic because the punishment that the internet um, mets out is almost as horrible as the punishment that a proper court would would met out the internet can obviously not imprison you physically, but it can also imprison you in terms of your access to opportunities or sort of things that you can engage in or participate in or just the mental um, breakdown that follows being accused of rape and a lot of people saying that, yes, you did it. So, like I said, it's a reflection of a problematic society to resolve those to resolve it, it's better to look at the problem and say we, we need to do better in terms of how we give justice to victims of sexual harassment and to rape. And also, we should use the internet in the right way that it creates awareness for these things and allows the right people to act so that we can be fair and just to all parties that are involved so as awara said the reason why self-help is so much on the rise is because people are disillusioned by the structures that are supposed to protect them and as a result they have to resort to solving their issues on their own. And as she rightly outlined the various and vigorous dangers of self-help and solving one's issue on one's own, we do believe that progressively and in society, we would get a better quality of of, um, societal and legal change in the issue of rape such that people will not have to resort to self-help before they feel that their claims are valid and before they can get the justice that they feel. It self-help shouldn't be what to do, but it's just an unfortunate reality that a lot of victims have been forced to and a lot of victims have to use. So if you are Nigerian and you. even if you're not Nigerian but let's start from Nigerian if you're Nigerian and you're listening to this podcast, please check if your state has domesticated the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act and the Child Rights Act if not please, if you have access to your lawmakers call them, email them send them texts During the NSAS period, we had a lot of emails for these lawmakers that were made public. Please contact them and tell them about these things. When politicians campaign, let them see reasons as to why these things should be things that they sway the crowd with. Because a lot of times now, The political allies, either in the executive or legislature, don't really care about issues like this because they believe that issues like this are non-issues and are things that people don't even care about. So to the extent where we start putting pressure on them, then most likely they stop being indifferent to the issue of rape. And moving beyond that, in a personal and individual capacity, please do not well rape culture do not be a victim blamer and most importantly don't be a rapist yourself that is the most important part like if everybody were not a rapist nobody going to be talking about these things if we just chose not to sexually assault people it's not that hard don't sexually assault people However, is, it, is it really so difficult at the end of the day it isn't I'm sure it's not difficult (laughs) so we've come to the end of this episode it was very nice for me recording and hearing our beautiful voice and our beautiful views it's so funny how much work we got into recording this podcast, it's so laughable because it took us a while like a long time to get this together but I'm so happy that we've been able to get this together and present you something beautiful and worthy of you listening to our thank you very much for coming on this podcast today thank you so much for having me this was fun and like you said (laughs) laughably tasking in how we got to do the recording but i'm happy we're finally recorded this important episode and thank you so much for having me on your podcast yeah so in the description for the podcast i'm going to be including the name of of the relevant laws and statutes that were used in this episode and probably a link to them if you want to see for yourself so you do know that we are telling you those things that are in this law book and do not forget to check if your state has the VAPP and the Child Rights Act thank you very much for listening to this episode bye for now bye